Chapter Thirteen, Part One, of the Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders, by F. Lovell Coombs, Chapter Thirteen, Part One, Professor Click, Mine Reader. Some months previously, Alex and Jack had arranged to take their two weeks' vacation at the same time and to spend one week at Haddowville, Jack's home, and the other at Bixton. The long-looked-for Monday had at length arrived, early that morning Jack had joined Alex at Exeter, and the two boys, aboard the Eastern Mail, were now well on their way to Haddowville. For some minutes Alex's part in the animated conversation of the two chums had waned. Presently, plucking Jack's sleeve, he quietly directed his companion's attention to the double seat across the aisle of the car. "'Jack, watch that soldier's fingers,' he said in a low voice. "'What's the matter with him?' The soldier in question, in the uniform of an infantry regular, sat facing them beside a stout elderly gentleman. Opposite the first soldier was a second, in a similar uniform, and sharing the seat with the latter, and facing the old gentleman, was a decidedly pretty young girl." It was the first soldier's left hand, however, which attracted the boy's particular attention. Resting in his lap, and partly concealed by a newspaper, the hand was so doubled that the thumb stood upright, and this latter member was bobbing and wagging up and down, now slowly, now quickly, in most curious fashion. "'Perhaps it's St. Vitus's dance,' ventured Jack. "'But that affects the whole body, or at least the whole limb, doesn't it?' Jack, who sat next the window, leaned slightly forward. "'The other soldier is watching him,' he said. "'Maybe the fellow with the wiggling thumb is out of his mind, and this one is taking him somewhere. He's watching his hand.' Silently the boys continued to regard the curious proceeding. Suddenly the thumb became quiet. There was the rattle of a paper in the hands of the second soldier, and in turn his thumb became affected with the wagging. In a moment the boys understood. The two soldiers were army signalers, and were carrying on a silent conversation, using their thumbs as they would a flag. Jack and Alex looked at one another and laughed softly. "'We're bright, hey?' Alex remarked. "'Let us watch when the other starts again. We can't see this chap's hand well enough. And see if we can read it,' suggested Jack." That one flag signal system is based on the telegraph dot and dash code, you know, and it's not likely they're speaking of anything private, only amusing themselves. The paper opposite again covered the first soldier's hand, and observing closely, after a few minutes the boys were able to interpret the strokes of the wagging thumb with ease. They corresponded precisely to the strokes of a telegraph sounder, and of course were very much slower. Not much. I saw her first, they read. You have three girls at K now. Get out. I'll tell Maggie O'Rourke, and she'll pick your eyes out. No, sir. You can have the two old maids just back of you, and the fat party with the red hair. That's your taste, anyway. If you spoke, she'd freeze you so you'd never thaw out. The two boys exchanged glances and chuckled in amusement. "'Say, look at the gaudy nose on that old chap across the aisle,' went on the wagging thumb. "'Talk about danger signals. 
They ought to hire him to sit on the cowcatcher foggy nights. I wouldn't like to pay for all the paint it took to color it. Plain whiskey, I guess. You can see what you are coming to if you don't look out. What's the matter with that baby back there? Is the woman lynching it, or is it lynching the woman? It's not, either. It's just like your high tenor, singing the soldier's farewell. Only better, more in tune. Yes, if they knew what we'd been saying about them, there'd be a riot. I wouldn't give much for your hair when the two old ladies behind got through with it. At this point, unable to resist the temptation, Alex nudged Jack, drew a pencil from his pocket, and slyly tapped on the metal of the seat-arm the two letters of the telegraph laugh, high. The soldier opposite started, looked quickly over, caught the two boys' twinkling eyes, and coloring, laughed heartily. Promptly then he raised his thumb and wagged, "'You young rascals! I'll have you in the guardhouse for stealing military information. Who are you?' Alex replied, using his thumb as he had seen the soldier do, and the animated exchange of signals which followed continued until a whistle from the engine announced a stop, and the soldier wagged, "'We get off here. Good-bye.' "'Glad to have met you.' he said, smiling, as he and his companion passed them. "'Glad to have met you,' responded the boys heartily. "'And to have got on to the signalling. It may come in useful some day,' Alex added. "'Good day.' "'That's just what I was thinking myself, Al,' declared Jack. "'We must practice it.' Following the disappearance of the outgoing passengers, a group of newcomers appeared at the farther car door. "'Here comes someone I know,' Jack observed. "'The big man in front. Burke, a real estate agent.' The tall, heavy-featured man passed them and took the seat immediately behind. "'He didn't speak to you,' commented Alex. "'I'm glad he didn't. He's no friend. Just knew him, I meant,' responded Jack. "'He is a proper shark, they say. I know he practically did a widow out of a bit of property just back of ours.' And here is another, same business, from the next town, and not much better," Jack went on, as a short, bustling, sharp-featured man appeared. The man behind them stood up and called, "'Hi there, Mitchell. Here!' The newcomer waved his hand, came forward quickly, and also dropped into the seat at the rear of the two boys. "'Nice pair of hawks,' said Jack. "'I'll bet they're hatching up something with a shady side to it.' I'd be tempted to listen, if I could." As the train was again under way, Jack had no opportunity of overhearing what was being said behind them. A few miles farther, however, they came once more to a stop, and almost immediately he pricked up his ears and nudged Alex. "'Don't believe the ignorant dolt knows the real value of butter and eggs!' It was the deep voice of the bigger man, Burke. He's one of those queer ducks, without any friends. Lives there all by himself, doesn't read the papers. Only comes to town about once a month. No, there's not one chance in ten of his waking up and getting on to it. "'You always were a lucky dog,' declared the other. "'If you land it, you ought to clear fifty thousand inside of five years.' "'A hundred. I intend holding for a cold hundred thousand. There has been talk of the town building a steam-plant already, but water is, of course, away ahead of that, and they are sure to swing to it. 
and this fall is the only one within ten miles of Haddowville. "'Didn't I tell you?' exclaimed Jack in a whisper. "'Doing somebody out of something, whatever it is.' "'You might build the plant yourself, and hold the town up for whatever you wished,' the second speaker went on. "'Yes, I could, but I prefer the ready cash. That has always been my plan of doing business. No, I figure on disposing of the farm just as it stands, either to the town or a corporation, for an even hundred thousand. "'Does that give you a clue, Jack?' Alex asked. Jack shook his head. At the next remark, however, he sharply gripped Alex's arm. "'What fall has a stream there?' Forty feet, and the lake back of it's nearly a mile long and a half-mile wide.' The rumble of the train again drowned the voices of the two men, but Jack had heard enough. "'It's old Uncle Joe Potter, his farm,' he said with indignation. "'Now I understand. The old farmer apparently doesn't know its value as an electric power plant site, and Burke is trying to get hold of it for a song.' "'Let us put the old man on to him,' Alex immediately suggested. "'I'll talk the matter over with Father and see what he says.' said Jack. "'But here comes the good old town,' he broke off, with boyish enthusiasm. "'Look, there is the creek, and the old swimming-hole at the bend. I'll bet I've been in there a thousand times. And see that spire? That's our church. Our house is just beyond. Come on, let's be getting out.' Catching up their suitcases, the boys passed down the aisle. As they halted at the door, they glanced back and saw that their neighbors of the next seat were following them. The two men were still talking, and coming to a stand behind the boys, the latter caught a further remark from Burke, apparently referring to the Potter Farm deal. "'Road asking him to town this evening,' he was saying. "'I'll give him a bit of good time to-night, and put him up at one of the hotels. And, unless something unexpected happens—' I'll guarantee I'll have the thing put through by noon tomorrow. I hope you do, responded his companion. And I hope you don't, exclaimed Jack beneath his breath, and I may do something more than hope. Twenty minutes later, after a joyous welcome from his father and mother and sister Kate, and the cordial reception extended Alex, Jack was seated at his old corner of the vine-hidden veranda recounting the conversation they had overheard between the two real-estate men. Before Mr. Orr had ventured an opinion in the matter, however, the subject was temporarily thrust aside by the appearance of a party of Kate's girlfriends, evidently much disturbed over something. When on running forward Kate's voice was quickly added to the excited conversation, Jack followed to greet the girls, and learn the cause, and returned with the party to the veranda. "'Now what do you think of this?' he exclaimed with tragic horror. "'Professor Robison, the world-renowned mind-reader, though I never heard of him before, owing to his inability to arrive, will not be able to present at the girls' club song-fight to-night. Did you ever?' "'But it's no laughing matter,' said Kate, following the introduction of her friends to Alex, he was the feature of our program to-night, and I simply can't see what we're going to do. Many of the people will be coming just to hear him. "'Jack, couldn't you help us out?' 
asked one of the other girls, half seriously. You used to pretend you were a phrenologist and all that kind of thing at school, I remember. No thanks, Mary. I've gotten over all that sort of foolishness, Jack responded, expanding his chest and speaking in a deep voice. I leave that for you younger folks. A small laughing riot followed this pompous declaration, and at its conclusion Jack carried Alex off to introduce him to his pigeons and chickens and other former treasures of the backyard. Some minutes later Jack was dilating on the rich undercolor of his pet buff Orpington hen, when Alex, with an apology, abruptly broke in. "'Say, Jack, what kind of a crowd do they have at these girls' club affairs? Very swell?' "'Well, about every one in the church goes, and quite a few farmers usually come in from out of town. They are as swell as anything we have here, I guess. The Sunday school room is usually well filled.' Why? I was just wondering whether we couldn't help the girls out, and have a little fun out of it into the bargain. Remember the soldiers on the train? Now, why couldn't we? And therewith Alex briefly sketched his plan. Jack promptly tossed the hen back into the coop. Great, Al! We will! It will be all kinds of a lark. I think there is just the stuff we'll need up in the garret. Come on! We'll break the joyful tidings to the girls. "'I'd rather you played the part, though,' said Alex, as they returned toward the veranda. "'You, of course, know everyone.' "'That will make no difference according to this plan. If I am in full view, too, that will add to the mystery, and help keep up the fun. The folks will be breaking their heads to learn who it is on the platform. No, it's settled.' You are the distinguished professor, and freno—what do you call it?" The girls on the veranda were still in dejected debate as the boys reappeared. "'Ladies, we've got this thing fixed for you,' announced Jack. "'We have just wirelessed and engaged that world-famous thought-stealer, bumpologist, and general seer, Professor Mohammed Click, of Constantinople, to plug up that hole in your program tonight.' He stated that it would give him great pleasure to come to the assistance of such charming young women, etc., and that he could be counted upon. "'You two mean things!' exclaimed Kate. "'We saw you with your heads together out there, laughing. This is no joking matter at all.' "'We are serious,' Jack protested. "'Positively. You go ahead and announce that owing to an attack of croup or any other reason— Professor Robison will not be able to appear, but that Professor Click has kindly consented to substitute, and we will look after the rest. "'Do you really mean it?' cried the girls. "'On our word as full-grown gentlemen,' responded Jack. "'But we're not going to explain. Come on, Alex, until we have further debate with the distinguished Turk up in the garret. He probably has arrived by this time.' Whatever doubts Kate had as to the seriousness of the boys' intentions, they had not only been dissipated by noon, but had given place to lively curiosity and expectation. Alex and Jack had devoted the entire morning to their mysterious preparations, had made numerous trips to the church schoolroom, to the stores, had borrowed needles, thread, mucilage, had turned the library shelves upside down in a search for certain books, and once, coming on them unawares, she had surprised them practising strange incantations with their fingers. 
It was late in the afternoon that the serious, and what was to prove the most important, feature of the evening's performance developed. On a return trip to the dry goods store, Jack drew Alex to a halt with an exclamation, and pointed across the street. Burke, the real estate man, was walking slowly along with a shriveled-up little old gentleman in dilapidated hat, faded garments, and top boots. "'The victim!' said Jack, with deep disgust. "'Old Uncle Joe Potter! Look at him sporting along with a cigar in his mouth, one of Burke's cigars!' The boys paralleled the oddly assorted pair some distance, and it could readily be seen that Burke was doing his best to win the old man's confidence, and that the latter already was much impressed with the attention and deference shown him by the well-dressed agent. "'If we could get the old man alone,' said Alex. "'Not much chance, I am afraid. Now that he has him in hand, Burke probably won't lose sight of him until he has closed his bargain.' Remember what he said just before we left the train, about giving the old chap a good time to-night, and putting him up at one of the hotels?" Alex halted. "'Give him a good time! Say, Jack, why shouldn't we give him a good time at the girls' club entertainment to-night? And then why shouldn't we—' Jack uttered a shout, and struck Alex enthusiastically on the back. "'Al, you've hit it! You've hit it! Bully!' Here. Give me those complimentary tickets Kate gave us, and I'll go right after them, before they make any other arrangements. You wait." Jack was running across the street in a moment, and drawing up alongside the two men, he addressed them both. "'Excuse me, Mr. Potter, Mr. Burke, but wouldn't you like to take in our girls' club entertainment tonight? It's going to be really quite good. Good music, and fun, and a bit of a tea-social in between.' "'I'm sure you would enjoy it,' he declared, addressing himself to the older man. "'One of the features of the program is a chap who claims he can read people's thoughts. Of course, nobody thinks he can, but he will make lots of fun.' The old man smiled and looked at his companion. "'It's up to you, Mr. Potter,' responded Burke genially. "'If you think you would enjoy it, why, I would. Your taste is good enough recommendation for me.' "'Then let us go,' said the old gentleman, putting his hand into his pocket. "'No, this is my treat,' interposed Burke, grasping the tickets. "'Here you are, lad, and keep the change.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Jack, and with difficulty restraining a shout, he dashed back toward Alex, waving his hat above his head as a token of victory. The scene of the girls' club entertainment, the church schoolroom, was filled to the doors when the program began that evening. "'I'm going to be anxious about Mr. Burke and the old man, though,' observed Jack, who with Alex had been standing near the entrance, and remarking on the good attendance. A moment after the door again opened, and Jack started forward with an expression of relief. They had come. "'Good evening, Mr. Potter, Mr. Burke,' he said. "'Shall I find you a seat?' "'Yes, and a good one now.' requested the real estate man. "'I saved two well to the front,' responded Jack. "'This way, please.' "'Now, Alex,' he said, returning, "'it's up to us.' The mind-reading number on the program was at length reached. The chairman arose. "'I am very sorry to say, ladies and gentlemen,' he announced, 
that Professor Robison, who is next on the program, was unexpectedly not able to keep his engagement. However, in his place we have secured the services of Professor Mahmoud Click of Constantinople, astrologer, phrenologist, mind-reader, and general all-round seer, and I'm sure you'll find him no less instructive and entertaining. Despite this assurance, in the silence which followed there was a distinct note of disappointment, even displeasure, for it was obvious that the flowery title of the substitute concealed some local amateur. End of Part 1 of Chapter 13